Thank you, Dave, for leading in prayer and for reading scripture for us this morning. Uh, we are currently in a series looking at what we are calling the core values of Grace Valley Church. And so we call this series Foundations. These are the things that, that we believe are important to the worshiping life of this community that is Grace Valley Church. And what we've been saying each time is that each of these core values is not just something we value because um, they're important to have in important parts of the life of the church, but we're saying that each of these values meets a fundamental human need. Human beings are made a certain way, and there are certain things that human beings crave, human beings long for, human beings need in order to live. And each one of these core values that we have been looking at week after week meets one of those needs. And this week, we're, we're going to look at the core value of prayer, the, the title of the message. Is it up there? Yeah. Prayer dependent. Grace Valley Church is a church that believes that we are dependent upon prayer, that we, it is part of our lives, it is necessary for us to go to God in prayer, individually and corporately. If you're a Christian here today, you know that already, right? You know that Christians are supposed to pray, you know that prayer is supposed to be an important part of a Christian's walk and a Christian's life, because there's power in prayer. Some of us have very obvious and, and very, well, powerful <laughs> um, examples of the power of prayer in our life and in our life stories. If any one of us has gone through a hard time, if in, and you're, you're a follower of Jesus Christ and you've gone through suffering, you've gone through something extremely painful and difficult, uh, you know the power of prayer. You know that there are times in your life where you are so weighed down, you are so burdened, you are, you are so overwhelmed that there is, there is almost nothing you can do to, to lift that burden, to, to remove that weight. And so all you can do is cry out the simplest prayer like, God help! And amazingly enough, he does. He's done it. You know, James says in James chapter 5, verse 16, he says that the prayer, prayers of a righteous person are powerful and effective. And some of us here have actual experiences of that power and that effectiveness. And you know, Martin Lloyd-Jones, who was a great preacher in the, in the last century, during the 20th century, he said that, that prayer is actually the highest activity of the human soul. The highest activity of the human soul. It's the noblest pursuit. If you're, if you're trying to think about what's the thing that, that is, is most, uh, most expressive, expressive of what we were created to do and created to be as human beings, it's prayer. And it's our greatest labor. It is the, the thing in the life of the church that is, that is most important to the life of the church. And yet... You might say yes and amen to that, but I have met almost no Christians over the course of my life who is actually happy with their prayer life. 
It's the highest activity of the human soul. We say yes and amen. It's the noblest pursuit of the human heart. Yes and amen. It is the greatest labor of the church of Jesus Christ. Yes and amen. How is your prayer life? It stinks. I have to confess, you know, after many, many years as a pastor and as a Christian, uh, my own prayer life I find to be woefully anemic. Is it, are you low on iron when you're anemic? Yeah, right? And then it makes you like tired and weak. Am I right? Okay, I used the word properly. My own prayer life has been anemic. And, and I will confess to you, brothers and sisters of Grace Valley Church, I will confess to you that of all the things that a pastor is supposed to do for his church as an under-shepherd, who is appointed by Jesus Christ to lead and guide his people in their lives, the thing that I have probably failed the most at is prayer. I have not prayed for you as much as I should have, with, with the intensity that I should have, with the, the unction and the, the, the seriousness and the urgency that I should have. I have done too many things as a pastor, just sort of out of my own strength, my own skill set, trusting that, you know, it'll work out without really, without really doing the work of a pastor that is to intercede on behalf of God's people. Now, it's not all doom and gloom. I've made some progress in the last six months. <laughs> Praise God for that. I am praying for you more regularly. But I'm confessing this because I think we're probably a lot of us in the same boat. My mother was a prayer warrior. It was no big deal for my mom to spend two hours praying in a day, like straight. I, I don't know what that's like. I don't know how that's possible. And probably a lot of you don't know what that's like or how that's even possible either. And I've kind of dreaded preaching this sermon because, you know, I'm going to say that Grace Valley Church is prayer dependent, but I think if there's a weakness in this church, it's our prayer life. It's my prayer life. It's the staff's prayer life. It's our prayer life corporately and probably, I can't say for sure, but, you know, in my experience, people aren't all that different from one another, really. When you get right down to it, we're not all that different from each other. So probably in your own life, too. And it's probably partly because we don't quite understand how prayer is meant to meet one of those deepest human needs that we have. You know what every human being longs for and desires for? Desires, I should say. We long for and we desire transcendence. Now, what do I mean by that? That's a big word. I got some young people trying to take notes and they hear the word transcendence and they're going to put that in that little box that says a word I don't understand. Transcendence means this, this connecting with the divine, this experience, this thirst that we have to connect, to meet, 
to be engaged with something beyond us, to, to meet deeper meaning than ourselves. You see this need all over the place, frankly. You see this need in, in um, the romantic poets of the 18th century, if you're into that kind of thing. You see this need in uh, basically the drug movement where people say, you know, to, what is it, uh, drop out, tune in, tune on, whatever. You drop a hit of acid in order to expand your mind and get outside of it. You see this in uh, this, this trend toward uh, pursuing something called ego death. If you have no clue what I'm talking about, you can just YouTube it. My son told me about this once, and that's how I discovered it. Ego death, this, this, uh, this Western, this is a Western thing. People in the West who are trying to somehow get outside of themselves where their own ego, their own consciousness, their own self-centeredness gets, gets uh, blown apart because they have somehow connected with this divine, transcendent being that exists outside of the physical realm that we inhabit. You see this actually in the work of, a, a, he's a brilliant atheist, his name is Sam Harris, and he has written books on what he calls humanistic spirituality. This is, you don't believe in God, you don't believe in, in a transcendent realm or anything, but you still have this deep human need to connect with something outside of yourself. There is a thing in us that wants to connect with a thing that is bigger, that is better, that is beyond us. It's outside of us. And more now than ever, in fact, in part, you know, I, I can't spend too long on this, but a lot of it has to do with the fact that we're coming out of a two to three hundred year project known as the Enlightenment Project. And this was a, a, a school of thought that developed in the 1700s that basically taught us that with our reason, with the human abilities to, to think and be logical and, and to work things out with our minds, we could understand the universe as it actually is. And, and as we use the scientific method to discover more and more how things happen and how things work in the universe, we could get rid of God more and more until we actually were able to master everything around us. And, and what has happened is the result of that is people have lost their enchantment with the world. They've lost the wonder the mystery, the, the, the beauty that, that exists beyond expression in the universe in which we live. And so today, people are hungering and longing for this, this experience of the transcendent in a way that they haven't for, for a very, very long time. Julian Barnes is a British novelist, and in one of his novels, he wrote, the opening line of his novel is, I don't believe in God but I miss him. Expressing this angst that even secular people have, that, 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 that the world has just lost its enchantedness. Well, the gospel is this, friends. The gospel is that you and I can experience this transcendence, this connection with the divine because... 
The gospel is that the divine, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, is God himself in the flesh who came into this world so that we could connect with him. The ideal became real. The infinite became finite. The, the, the transcendent became imminent. The, the, the eternal became temporal. And the way that you and I get to regularly, frequently, commonly engage with this transcendent being outside of us is through prayer. It's the means, a means, a main means, by which God has given us to have our soul's longing for connection with the divine actually satisfied. We're going to look at this text together. Uh, it's a text on prayer, classic text on prayer. Jesus teaching his disciples on prayer. There's a lot to say on this, and, 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 but we're going to only do one sermon on it, so I'm going to stick to four things, probably. One, the simplicity of prayer. Two, the difficulty of prayer. Three, the relationship of prayer. And finally, the community of prayer. Those four things. Here we go. First of all, the simplicity of prayer. And this won't take too long. What is prayer? What is it? Well, it's basically talking to God about the things that are on your heart. That's essentially what it is. If you look at these requests that Jesus gives in, um, when he says in verse 2, when you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name. What's on his heart? Father, may you and who you are be made clear to me, be manifested to me in such a way that I am overawed and amazed at your being. Your kingdom come. May, may your will, may the things that you have set before this world as the way we ought to live, may that actually happen in this world and may we bear the fruit of that. May your authority be recognized in this world. That's what he's saying. Give us today our daily bread. God, I have needs. I have material needs. These, these are my material needs. Forgive us our sins as we forgive others. I need mercy. Grant me your mercy. Remind me of what Jesus did on that cross so many, so many years ago. Your kingdom come. Oh, no, that's it. The point is, prayer is basically sharing with God what's on your heart. You know, sometimes people go, well, I don't know if that's worthy of prayer. You know, should we be praying about that? You know when you're teaching your kids to pray, your little kids to pray, and they're, you know, they're, God, be with the cat because she's going to have kittens. Or, Lord, my birthday's coming up, and I really think I should get a new bike. And you might want to roll your eyes and think, oh, you know, these, are these things that you bring to God? Like, come on, God's a busy God, isn't he? But in his first miracle, Jesus goes to a wedding, and his mom comes up to him, and she says, they're out of booze. That's what she says. They're out of wine at this wedding. This is a terrible social faux pas. Do something about it. Whatever is on our hearts, that's what we bring to God in prayer. It's the simplicity of prayer. Second thing, okay, the difficulty of prayer. Sure, prayer is simple. We say this about the gospel. We say this about a lot of things. It's simple, but it's not easy. It's simple but it's not easy, and certainly prayer is like that. Here is Jesus with his disciples. They have been with him for a long time. 
They have walked with him from village to village. They have seen him do all these miracles. They've sat down and had campfires together, and they made s'mores, and they talked about all kinds of stuff. And one of the things that the disciples saw and noticed as they spent all this time with Jesus is that every now and then, they'd wake up and they'd be like, hey, where's Jesus? He was sleeping right there. He's not here. Where is he? Well, Luke especially tells us Jesus got up early and he went off to pray to spend time with his father over and over and over again. And the disciples notice this. They see that Jesus makes prayer a pretty central part of his life. And this is a guy who's only got three years, three years to accomplish his mission, teach his people who he is and what he came to do, die on the cross, rise again from the dead, and ascend into heaven. He's got three years to get it all done, and he spends a strange amount of time doing nothing. To advance the mission, he spends all this time in prayer. And so his disciples come to him and say, hey, what's this all about? You better teach us, you better teach us how to pray. And so what does he do? He teaches them. And the implication of that is prayer is something that we need to learn. Prayer is not something that comes naturally to us. It's something that we have to cultivate. It takes practice. You know, I've had four kids, each of whom has gone through the process of getting their license. And what's interesting is, is that kids spend a lot of time watching driving. Because you're taking them here, you're taking them there, you're off to school, you're off to sports, you're off to piano lessons, whatever, and they watch this driving, right? Now, what if your kid, when they turn 16, they say, you know what? I've watched a lot of driving. This is a piece of cake. Hand over the keys, ma. Off I go. And they hop in the front seat. They turn that engine, and off they go. I had one that kind of was a little bit like that. They shouldn't be like that, right? It's something they've observed. It's something they kind of understand conceptually. But if they get it behind the wheel and just take off, it's disaster about to happen, right? Because they should have a certain sense of caution and a certain sense of humility about the fact that they need to learn how to do this. And the same is true with prayer. We got a bunch of newlyweds uh, at Grace Valley Church. I've had, I've had the chance to to visit with a few of them uh, recently. And it's so cool because, you know, when you're a newlywed, you're just so deeply in love. <laughs> Not, sorry, I, I know that sounded cynical, but you, you are. You're deeply in love, and it is beautiful, and it's great. But what's funny is, is, is like the relationship seems so easy, right? You know, we're getting along, you do this, and we thought we'd have some trouble. It's just been so easy. But, you know, then life gets in the way. And over time... Things get complicated. And it takes work to maintain a marriage. It seems so easy at first, but in order to, to advance it, to, to strengthen it, and for it to get better as time goes on, you have to work at it. And prayer is much like that. If, if you try to pray for 30 minutes straight, without interruption, what happens? Even John Newton, the great hymn writer, Amazing Grace, remember, he said that, you know, when I am praying, my prayer life is so bad and so weak that I can be in the middle of prayer and before the throne of the king of the universe who has, has his ear attuned to every word I have said. I've got his, his complete and total attention and I'm in front of the king of the universe and a fly buzzing in the room is enough to distract me and blow the whole thing up. I don't know how many of you I've talked to who say, you know, 
whenever I try to pray before I go to sleep, I always fall asleep while I'm praying. Well, I can tell you, that proves to you that prayer is harder than preaching because I've never once forgotten that I was praying or preaching and went, oh, wait a minute, hey, there's a congregation out there. Prayer is hard. You get distracted so easily. You fall asleep in the middle of prayer. Now, I will say to that one, by the way, what better way to fall asleep? Don't feel down about falling asleep while you're praying. Pretty cool way to fall asleep if you think about it. Anyhow, why is it hard? And this is point three. Why is it hard? Well, because prayer is a relational thing. It's a personal thing. It's not like meditation. A lot of people are into meditation today. You know what meditation is all about? It's all about emptying your mind so that you're sort of thinking about nothing and you experience sort of a union with the energy that makes up everything that is. It's a little bit hard for us Western people to understand, but essentially what meditation is is a substitute for prayer, but it's a technique, you see. You can master it. If you learn the tips and tricks and practice the tips and tricks of meditation, you can actually become pretty good at it. But prayer is communion with a person. And when you're communing with a person, that means they have a personality, that means they have a consciousness, and that means they have a will. And as soon as you're trying to build a relationship with someone with a will, you can't simply figure out the technique that works. Anybody who's, I'm really onto this uh, family stuff right now, marriage. Again, we'll go back to marriage. Anybody who's married to someone, you know, you think you got your spouse figured out. If I do this, then they'll do that. And if I say that, they'll say that. Boom, ba-doom, ba-doom. And then it works like three out of four times. And that fourth time you try it and they're like, come out of left field with a completely different reaction. And you're like, I don't understand you. And in a sense, that is how our relationship is with God. Because he is a person, because he has a personality and a will, he is, in some senses, unpredictable. Because you will be praying for something and asking for something and thinking that this is a good thing that God is, ought to give you because it will bring him glory and it will benefit your life and everybody will be happy in the end. And God turns to you and he says, no. And you go, what? I said, no. But I don't understand. It is not for you to understand, my child. It's for you to trust. You know, I think one of the reasons that our prayers' lives are always boring and bland and stilted, where we, we, don't, we run out of things to say, or you're in a prayer group and you're freaking out because, oh man, I'm like number four, probably if we go around the circle, I'm going to be the fourth person to pray. Oh, I hope I have something that the first three don't say because then I'm lost, I'm out. I got nothing to bring to the table. It's because... We don't really know the person we're praying to. I go to, I go to a lot of weddings, because I do a lot of weddings. And sometimes I go to a wedding where, frankly, I'm just being invited to the reception because I'm the pastor. Like, you all know that you got to do that, right? you got to invite the pastor. And sometimes you don't have much of a relationship with the pastor, so you invite him anyway. And he and his lovely bride end up on table 39 in the back corner with the, the third and fourth cousins that you invited and thought for sure they're not coming because they got to get on a plane and cross two continents, and they said yes. And you, like, barely know their names. 
But they said they'd come, and so you put them in the back corner, and you put the pastor with them. And so you're meeting new people, and you don't know one another at all, and, and you start trying to have a conversation. And there's some things that go pretty well. Where are you from? Well, we're two continents away. And you say, how old are you? And what, how many kids do you have? Blah, 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 blah. But then you start to run out of things, and things start to get awkward, okay? Because you don't know one another. Now, you go out for dinner with your closest friends, and these could be people that you see only once or twice a year. But you know them deeply and intimately. They know you deeply and intimately. And, and you go out for dinner, and the conversation, it just flows and there's laughter, and there's back and forth, and there's banter, and it's so much fun. And by the end of the night, you look at your watch, you go, oh, man, we've been out here for three hours. It felt like 20 minutes. Why? Because you know them deeply, and they know you deeply. When we pray, do we know who we're talking to? Do we really know him? That's the question. Well... Jesus says, when you pray to God, pray to your Father. Now, Jesus was the first one to say that. This is who he is. He's our Father. Well, let's think about this. The Westminster Confession of Faith, which is the confession of faith of, on which the teachings of this church are based. Well, I shouldn't say that. <laughs> the Bible <laughs> is what the teachings of this church are based. But the Westminster Confession of Faith is a summary of what the Bible teaches. Listen to what the Westminster Confession of Faith says about God. There is only one living and true God. He's infinite and perfect. He's pure and invisible spirit. He doesn't have a body, multiple parts, or human passions. He doesn't change. He's immense, eternal, unable to be fully understood. He's all-powerful, very wise, very holy, totally free and absolute over everything. God is very loving, gracious, full of mercy and patience, overflowing with goodness and truth. He forgives our wrongdoing and sin. He rewards everyone who diligently seeks him. He's also very just. His judgments can be terrifying because he hates all sin and certainly won't let the guilty off the hook. That's just a simple description of who God is. And Jesus says, that being is your Father. Your Father. You know why we pray in Jesus' name, right? It doesn't say, like Jesus doesn't say, when you pray, remember to say, for Jesus' sake, amen, or in Jesus' name, amen. Yet we do that. Why do we do that? Because we know the gospel says that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, came into this world to live the life that we should have lived, to die the death that we should have died. And when he did that, he paid the penalty for our sin and opened up the way for us to have access to our God as his children. We are adopted into the family of God. We are his children. And so we have the right to go into the presence of this being who is all those things I described. I won't read it again to you. And we have the nerve to come to him the way kids come to their parents. Little kids, they're so bold, you know. Uh, when I was at my last church, I had a, I had an, a study in my house and, you know, people would come to visit the pastor, and if they hadn't called ahead, you know, they'd knock. 
and you'd say hello and they'd open the door is this a bad time am i inconveniencing you you know they're very polite about things they didn't want to mess with with your schedule it was very nice and then and then my kids bang 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 door opens dad blah, 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 blah. my wife had to put a, a, a we tried a stop sign thing where if it was green you were allowed to come into dad's office if it was yellow you had to knock first and if it was red you had to turn around and not come back didn't work that great bang 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 come in dad your door thing says it's red why They come in, they barge in, they're shameless. Look at verse 8 of our text. The context is someone's having people over. He doesn't have any food, so he goes and bangs on his neighbor door, neighbor's door. And the neighbor's frustrated. And it says in verse 8, I tell you, even though he will not get up and give you the bread because of friendship, yet because of your shameless audacity, he will surely get up and give you as much as you need. The man gives the bread because of the other man's shameless audacity. It's bordering on rude. How dare he ask this? He didn't care what people thought. He didn't care what his friends thought of his need. He just had the audacity to, to ask. And that's what young kids are good at doing. I, I remember uh, buying some, or selling something on Kijiji. You know, you sell something on Kijiji and somebody comes over and I'm standing at the door, and they got their 100 bucks or whatever, and they give me 100 bucks, and I give them the thing, and I have one of my young kids beside me, and they look up at the person, total stranger, they put their hand out, can I have some money? <laughs> the audacity, right? The shamelessness. See, we run after, we run past our father, and we get to bread, give me my daily bread, I have so many needs. And what we should be doing is we should be basking in the fatherhood of God. That's what will make us bold. See, I don't think we persist in our prayers. I don't think we storm the gates of heaven and demand that our Father hear our prayer and answer our prayer because, frankly, we don't expect an answer. But Jesus, in our passage, he says, ask Seek, knock, and literally what he says is keep asking, keep seeking, keep knocking, because God, your Father, will ask you, because he is your Father. That's why in verses 11 through 13, Jesus all of a sudden switches, and he says, which of your fathers, if your son asks for a fish, will give him a snake instead? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then, though you are evil... Know how to give good gifts to your children. How much more will your Father in heaven give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? It's a pretty obvious thing Jesus is saying. He's saying like human fathers, even the lousy ones, because <laughs> you're evil. Human fathers, you know, when their kid is hungry, they don't, they don't give him a stone. They give him something to eat. They might do it grudgingly. They might do it grumpily because they got interrupted watching the game or something, but they do it. Now, if that is true, how much more true is it that your ultimate father, the one who is perfect in every way, who knows your needs before you even know them yourself, who is quicker to answer your prayer than you are to make your prayer, how much more would he respond to you than your evil 
earthly mom and dad. So don't run past fatherhood. Reflect on fatherhood. Think about fatherhood. Bask in the fact that God is your father in a way that even those of you who, who have had pretty lousy fathers, you even know, you know, you knew they were a lousy father. <laughs> because you know, at least intuitively to some degree, what a good father is. And even the best fathers don't compare to our heavenly father. Last thing, community. You know, when Jesus tells them to pray, it's not here in Luke 11. I have to borrow from Matthew 5, but it's still legit. Jesus says, not pray my Father. He says, pray our Father. It's very interesting. See, prayer is, even when it's done individually, it's still a communal thing. Because all of us who know Jesus as our Savior, we together know God as our Father. And, and in fact, the Bible seems to make prayer a lot like worship in the way it describes the way it, it's meant to be. Your devotional life, your personal devotional life at home is actually meant to simply prepare you for what's happening right now. Communal worship, when God's people get together as his family and they worship God together. This is, this is actually the priority. I would never tell you don't do devotions, but make sure you come to church. But what I am trying to tell you is that the word suggests that coming to church, meeting God's people for worship together is actually one of the most, if not the most critical practice that, that a Christian can participate in. And I know that we're coming out of COVID and, you know, a lot of us were nervous about coming out of COVID and some people are still nervous coming out of COVID and they're not coming to worship regularly and, and some of us have very busy lives that causes us to not be at worship regularly. Can I just, can I just say to you, I, 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 I'm, I'm sympathetic, but as your pastor, I want to issue you a warning Neglecting corporate worship is an incredibly dangerous practice for a follower of Jesus Christ. And I don't mean once a month. I mean weekly. It's not, it's not I don't want to see you here on Sunday morning for my ego, okay? It's not about, hey, you know, I worked hard on a sermon. Where are all the people to come listen to me? No, 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 it's, it's been demonstrated in sociological research all over the place. In fact, how many of you have heard of a guy named Ross Douthat? He's a Catholic guy. He writes in the New York Times, and he was writing about Christian worship, corporate worship, uh, just this week. Now, he's a Catholic, so he's talking about it in the Catholic uh, tradition, and he says, the Catholic faith isn't an idea you've chosen that then has corollaries in practice, like get to Mass on Sunday. He's saying it's an inheritance that you, have, you get handed and have to decide what to do with. And the foundational problem with the keep people Catholic by making it easier to be Catholic approach, it turns out, is that it removes too many of the signals indicating that this part of your inheritance is important, essential rather than something you can keep without really investing in it for yourself or when the time comes for your kid. 
He says, the world is making it harder to be Catholic, so let's make it easier to practice the faith. That's the mistake that has been made in the modern church. This is what he's saying, and I'm going to apply it to us here. This is Grace Valley Church, and we always want to talk about grace and how God is patient with us and how by doing things, we don't make him love us any more than he loves us right now because of the perfect obedience of his son, Jesus Christ. And so we're nervous to talk about obligations and practices. We're nervous to say, you must come to church because, whoa, wait a minute, what are you doing, pastor? Are you starting to put law in there instead of grace? Are you starting to say that God is pleased with me because I'm doing something rather than because I'm just trusting in my Savior? And the answer to that is no. But you need to remember there are things that are absolutely essential to the practice of the Christian faith that have been handed down to us since the beginning of it when Christ himself founded it and the apostles said that, that you must not give up meeting with one another. And you may not even entirely understand why it is so important for you to come to church week after week after week, but that's not really the thing that matters here. The thing that matters here is that God himself says it is important for us to be here week after week after week after week and I get how complicated it is I get how difficult it can be you've got kids that it seems like if you have kids young kids it seems like one of them is sick all the time and you're like how well how can I go to church then minister guy okay I'm I'm, I, I get it right half half the family has to go every week and it sucks I know You'd rather be together, and you'd rather be this to be easy. I'm not saying it's easy. All I'm saying is, friends, don't, don't neglect the means of grace that God has ordained. One of them is prayer. One of them is worship. Anyway, this isn't a sermon about worship. This is a sermon about prayer. Um, Let me just close with this. I'm going to skip a whole bunch of things and just get to my wants. (laughs) Um, Corporate prayer is so important because in corporate prayer, you get visions of God that you would not get in any other context. What do I mean by that? I'm not talking about new revelation. What I'm talking about is hearing your brother or your sister, someone who is... 65 and has been walking with God through all kinds of traumatic things and hard things is going to pray a different way than someone who's 22 and has had a pretty easy upbringing and not much experience in life. And as you, 22-year-old, listen to 65-year-old, you are going to discover things about God that you didn't know before. But it's not just an age thing because the old person is going to hear the young person cry out to God in different ways than they do because your needs, your circumstances are different than theirs and they're going to be reminded of how God meets needs that they're not even aware of. And when you come from different backgrounds and you, you come from different histories, you, you pray with one another and you, do, you experience God in ways that you would not in just isolation on your own or even if you're in a relationship with that uh, significant other or with your kids. You know, our session, we, we, we meet once a month. We're going to be meeting once a month for teaching and prayer. We're going to be praying through the congregation list. And times when we have prayed together and for one another, they are some of the most powerful and most holy times that we have known as a session where God's presence with us is, is, 
is so palpable you could almost cut it with a knife. I'm praying that someone would start a prayer meeting. <laughs> we had two prayer meetings pre-COVID when we were at the office. We had a men's group that met in the mornings and we had a women's group that met in the mornings. I, I, I don't have the time. Sorry, this sounds off. I'm like undermining my entire sermon. But uh, I, don't, I don't have the bandwidth to, to organize a prayer meeting. But I have the desire to attend one that's organized. Maybe you decide to, to do it during, uh, I'm, I'm teaching catechism to a bunch of kids right now. Maybe you, you meet before church to pray 20 minutes for the service that the Spirit would move powerfully in the midst of us when we gather in worship. Charles Spurgeon allegedly was taking a bunch of young seminary students around to, 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 to their church and, and they were talking, his church, and they were talking to him about all the conversions and stuff and, and why it was all happening. He said, well, hey, do you want to see the power plant? And they're like, oh, okay, what's the power plant? Sure, let's go. So he takes them down in the basement. They think they're walking into a boiler room. He opens the door and it was 100 to 200 people locked in prayer who were praying while worship was being prepared upstairs. And he said, this is the power plant. I don't have anything else to say. Let me pray with us, for us, with us. Father, uh, it's, we, are, we are weird creatures, human beings. We want things that you hold out to us, and then we don't take them. And then we complain. Forgive us for that, Father. You, we want to commune with you. We want to be in, in, in fellowship with you and experience the transcendent and the divine. And you say, okay, pray. And then we don't. Thank you, Father, for your forgiving heart. Forgive us again for our prayerlessness. Teach us to be prayerful communally, even if it were to be monthly, a monthly prayer meeting. It's a start. You move through prayer powerfully. Many of us can attest to that in our own personal lives. What would you do with this church if we were, we were a praying church together for your glory to, to, to shine in this place? Teach us all to pray, Lord. Teach us all to pray that we might have the intimacy with you that your own son had and has. In his name we pray, amen.